From MPB Bank Radio, this is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent, joined this morning by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Jack Nolan, Senior Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we'll talk about affirmative action and a recent Supreme Court ruling in favor of affirmative action. We'll discuss some of the policy arguments for and against affirmative action and some landmark cases that may determine its future. Our question to you, listeners... Do you believe affirmative action is still necessary in 2016 in school or the workplace? Give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Jack Nolan, Senior Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're talking about affirmative action and a recent Supreme Court ruling in favor of affirmative action. We'll also discuss some of the policy arguments for and against affirmative action and some landmark cases that may determine its future. Our question to you listeners, do you believe affirmative action is still necessary? Necessary in 2016 in schools or the workplace, you could give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. So good morning to you, Professor Gershon and Attorney Nolan. Good morning, Sharita. Did everybody have a good fourth? Yes, Sharita. How about you? It was was great. Uh, You know, a little bit rainy uh, at times when we needed the rain. I hope you had a good one as well. Yes, I did. I actually went to Natchez, uh, where they were having a fireworks show on the bluff. So it was really, really fun. It was hot because we walked, uh, but it, it was a, we had a great time. So, uh, but meanwhile, on the legal front, there have been some things going on regarding affirmative action, and we're going to talk about those things today and hopefully uh, clarify some things for those who may be interested in the topic. Um, first of all, uh, Attorney Nolan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your involvement in this area of law? Yeah, sure. So I am a professor, and I've been a professor for 17 years, and I've taught Constitutional Law One, this law school, probably 15 times over the last 16 years. And so I, I teach what I do for a living. Most of my, my time is read Supreme Court cases and discuss those cases, teach those cases. Uh, I do equal protection, due process, federalism, First Amendment, free speech and religion, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment criminal procedure, train judges in Fourth Amendment law. So I come at this as a professor and an educator who teaches this in the classroom. I've also been involved in the admissions process at the law school here and have served on the admissions committee, so I also have that kind of uh, direct personal experience. Interesting. So um, dealing with admissions on the school level, uh, do you see a lot of things involving affirmative action, um, applicants and things? Uh, Does it come up or is it just an expectation from the school system to already have things in place? 
Well, I think every single law school in the country has an affirmative action uh, plan, and since the Grutter decision in 2003, most schools have based their plan on Grutter, and our law school, like just about every other law school in the country, has a similar plan, so we, we think about that plan, and it, it does operate in our admissions process. And Sharita, you know, one thing that uh, we are accredited, accredited by the American Bar Association, and we're also a member of the American Association of Law Schools, both of those organizations require uh, a statement of diversity and some uh, policy that leads to a diverse student population because uh, they consider it really an important part of our mission. So talk a little bit more about that Grutter case uh, from 2003 that, that involved the University of, of Michigan Law School. Yeah, so we, we had in 2003, we had a, a pair of cases. There was uh, Grutter versus Bollinger, which was the University of Michigan Law School, and there was Gratz versus Bollinger, which was the University of Michigan Undergraduate School. And the Supreme Court upheld the affirmative action policy at issue in Grutter for the law school, but struck down the one in Gratz for the undergraduate program. And so we had, the, you know, decided basically at the same time a policy that was upheld and one that was struck down, and that gave schools a lot of guidance. If you base your policy on the one that was upheld, you'll be upheld. If you base your policy on the one that's struck down, you're going to get struck down. And if you're someplace in the middle, then there's some risk of litigation and invalidity. What, what the law school policy at the University of Michigan did, there was a race preference uh, uh, so that's what we normally think of it with affirmative action today. That traces back to the 1960s and executive orders, executive orders of President Kennedy and President Johnson. And the thought is you need to be proactive in fighting discrimination. And so at some point, the thought is you give race preferences to sort of level the playing field. And so that's become very common in the United States since the 1970s. The Michigan Law School had a policy, a longstanding policy along those lines. And the, some of the keys that led the court to uphold it was the diversity rationale. So the law school said what, what we're trying to do here is promote the uh, promote diversity in an educational environment for the educational benefits of diversity, which they described in detail and the Supreme Court approved. And then also the, the sort of the, the very nature of the policy itself. So we had a policy that was viewed as narrowly tailored. There's lots of legal test language we can talk about in a minute here, but the narrow tailoring aspect of the policy was the fact that race was one kind of diversity among many kinds of diversity. So mm. race wasn't the only thing that was being considered. Lots of things were being considered for diversity purposes. It's simply a plus factor. So there were no set-asides or quotas. There's no separate track. There was no separate track for minority students. Everybody went into the same pool. And there was holistic file review, uh, Michigan called it. Uh, so holistic file review, whole file review, meant that admissions office personnel looked at everything in somebody's file. Race is a factor, but many other things are factors. Race is a plus factor, but it's not outcome determinative. So there was individualized consideration of many factors, including race, uh, and there was exploration of race-neutral alternatives. The Michigan did their homework and determined that they couldn't actually achieve the educational benefits of diversity. They couldn't achieve the critical mass uh, representation of minorities in the classroom without a racial plus factor affirmative action system, and that satisfied five justices on the Supreme Court. Justice O'Connor wrote that opinion, and there were four justices vigorously dissenting, including Justice Kennedy. And this is one of those cases where there's a very sharp disagreement between the majority, who basically view Michigan as acting reasonably and in good faith and meeting the requirements of the Constitution, and the dissenters who were far more suspicious of Michigan and believe that they violated the Constitution. 
All right. This morning we're talking about affirmative action, and you can give us a call if you have any comments or questions. Our question to you is, do you believe affirmative action is still necessary in 2016 in school admissions or the workplace? Give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464, or you can send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Um, so, Attorney Nolan, when we talk about affirmative action, does it tie in with equal opportunity and diversity as it would uh, apply in a workplace as well? Well, certainly the, those terms are all connected. So affirmative action, I mean, the, the idea of affirmative action is basically to be proactive, to be more aggressive in achieving some kind of racial justice involving race preferences. Equal opportunity is, is basically that's an open-ended term. It means different things in different contexts. Uh, it basically means promoting equality in the workplace. If you're a supporter of affirmative action, affirmative action is a, a means of achieving equal opportunity. If you're one of the opponents of affirmative action, you may think that it's inconsistent with equal opportunity. Diversity, sometimes used as a synonym for uh, affirmative action, but the, the, the diversity in higher education context, that's actually a justification for affirmative action as race preferences. So there's got to be a reason why we're doing it. And in the higher education context, the reason is not, not something remedial. The focus has not been on making up for past discrimination, at least not in the modern era today when there are very few schools left that can plausibly uh, claim that they are desegregating. They, they were segregated. They've long since desegregated. So the remedial rationales are not accepted as broadly in higher education, and the focus is all on diversity. Diversity is connected to the educational mission of the school. Um, so from a societal perspective, if one were to uh, try to justify affirmative action and give an argument for why it is needed, uh, many, as, as you've talked about already, it's because of diversity and things like that. Uh, but from a societal perspective, what is uh, the exact or some exact reasons that affirmative action is necessary, like evident, you know, from evidence and, and research, those things that yeah. have been proven? Yeah, great, great question. So, well, I mean, one justification for affirmative action that's recognized, I think, less and less as time goes by, and that's basically remedial justification. So you could have all kinds of race-conscious remedies if you are actually fixing problems that the government created with race-conscious discrimination against minorities. So there's a case, United States versus Paradise from 1986 or 7, involving the Alabama Department of public safety, I believe it was, basically kind of highway patrol or a police force, their race-conscious affirmative action measures were really remedial to try to make up for the discrimination that that department had engaged in in the past. And the, if you've got a proven, a proven violator, a government violator, and a proven victim, absolutely you can do race-conscious measures. I think the courts generally uphold it if there's a race, uh, you've got a violator, a government entity that is still fixing problems, even if the persons they're helping aren't the precise victims, the victims were a generation ago. What the court is less and less willing to, to uphold and, and, and is basically condemned is the idea that we can make up for past societal discrimination. Lots of racism in America, lots of problems today generally in America that result from past racism. Making up for that is not really a justification now in the view of the court for affirmative action. Lots of people think it that's a good reason, but the Supreme Court has not viewed that as a constitutional reason. So the focus in higher education in particular has been diversity. So what are the educational benefits of diversity? We've mentioned that, but we haven't said exactly what they are. So some of the things that Michigan argued in Grutter and that the Supreme Court approved is improving the free exchange of ideas in the classroom. 
You have, uh, you know, diversity, including race diversity that you've produced with, in part with affirmative action. You have more perspectives in the classroom. That means the class discussion is richer and there's a better education. Also improving specifically cross-racial understanding so that members of different racial groups, because we've had difficult racial history in the United States, members of those different groups are able to understand each other better. Breaking down stereotypes along that same line. So for persons who are not that familiar with other people of different racial backgrounds come in and they see people as individuals, not as stereotypes, and it breaks down those stereotypes. The court also talks about preparing um, individuals for a multiracial workforce and a multiracial society. We have major demographic changes in this country happening and globalization. And so if you want to really educate students, you have to prepare them to deal with that, that work reality and that society. And then finally, the court talks about uh, cultivating leaders a future leadership uh, who will have legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry. So if you, if in some of the, some schools, if there was not substantial affirmative action efforts, they would be overwhelmingly white. And that's just the sad reality. There are many schools that would be overwhelmingly white, more so than they are without affirmative action efforts. And if you think in particular about the law school context that was being discussed in Grutter, and think about the percentage of governors and members of state legislatures and, of course, judges who are graduates of law school, then imagine a particular law school that's not able to achieve true racial diversity because it doesn't have an affirmative action program. Maybe it has very high strict admission standards. You're going to have leadership who does not have full legitimacy in the eyes of the population because they're not going to be viewed as representative of the population. So those are all things that the Supreme Court have been argued to the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court has accepted as part of the legitimate justification for affirmative action. All right, and we have some calls to get to. Wesley is in Brookhaven. Good morning, Wesley. What do you have for us? Well, I heard that uh, there was a student in the University of Texas that had not been accepted because she did not uh, fall into the racial guidelines, but she was in the top 10% of graduating seniors in Texas. Now, why is it that if uh, the top 10% is supposed to be able to get in to Texas University, they drop in people that's not racially different, they're white, and taking somebody with a lower grade average over them. Okay. All right, Wesley, and uh, he's referring to this uh, Abigail Fisher case, which uh, mm-hmm. has two parts, Fisher 1 and Fisher 2. Right. And the second one um, was a win for affirmative action. Uh, so, Wesley, mm-hmm. we're going to get uh, Attorney Nolan to explain that to you. Thank you for your call. Yeah. So um, so this is the Fisher litigation, Fisher 1 and Fisher 2. So Fisher 2 just came down a couple of weeks ago. Fisher 1 was in 2013. Um, these are follow-up cases to Gruder. And they're, they're a little strange because of the fact situation in, in Texas. So this comes out of the University of Texas system. Back in 1996, the Fifth Circuit, which is a lower federal court below the Supreme Court, decided the Hopwood decision. And the Hopwood decision took a very strict view of the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause is the constitutional provision at issue, took a very strict view and said basically no race preferences in at least no facially race preferences, no conscious, clear, uh, on its face of the policy use of race in admissions. So the Fifth Circuit covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So the University of Texas, Supreme Court didn't hear the case and didn't reverse it. So the Supreme, the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in. The lower courts 
ruling is binding. Texas wants to have an affirmative action policy of some kind. They've been told they can't have one that is that is racial on its face. So they they develop a top 10 percent policy. So and basically it's ultimately enacted by the legislature. It's supported by Governor Bush. And the top 10 percent policy says basically if you graduate in the top 10 percent, it maybe it's really sometimes top 8 percent, graduate in the top 10 percent, 8 percent, 9 percent of your high school graduating class, you get automatic admission to the University of Texas. And the reason why that achieves some, uh, you know, promotes racial diversity is you have some high schools that are overwhelmingly white and some high schools that are overwhelmingly Hispanic and some high schools that are overwhelmingly African-American. And so that actually promoted a fair amount of racial diversity in the university system. Well, then Grutter comes down in 2003 and Grutter upholds this holistic file review uh, plan that we've been talking about where there's individualized consideration of each file and you, you look at the, the file and you, you race as a plus factor, but there are many other things like military service or foreign travel, uh, in, interesting and in, uh, unusual life experiences. The court basically upholds that under the strict scrutiny test, which is the toughest constitutional test. It's the hardest one in the court, upholds that. The University of Texas has its 10% plan. That's been enacted by the state legislature, so they can't change that but they don't feel that they're getting all the diversity that they need to get the educational benefits of diversity. So they enact on top of the 10% plan, a Grutter style holistic file review. And so what happens at Texas, and as far as I know, they're the only school that's done this. 75% of the Texas undergraduates are admitted through the top 10% plan. And I think by that, at that point, it's probably top 8% technically. And then about 25% of the students are admitted through the holistic file review plan that's based upon Grutter. So the, the Grutter plan's basically constitutional. That's been approved by the Supreme Court. The top 10% plan has not been analyzed, and it was not challenged in Fisher either. It is facially race neutral, but it is race conscious. Its purpose and effect was to promote racial diversity, so it is subject to a level of scrutiny. But I think all the, the hints we get from the court is that because of its uh, neutrality on its face, it's more likely to be constitutional. It's not challenged in Fisher. Abigail Fisher wants to enter into the 2008 class at the University of Texas. This is three or four years after Texas has adopted its hybrid system, top 10% plan for three quarters of the class, a Grutter-style holistic file review system for the other quarter of the class. She doesn't get in. I don't think she made it under the top 10%. If she had, we wouldn't have a case. So she's trying to get in as part of the 25% not coming in under the top 10% plan. So she doesn't she's not admitted right so she's not happy about that she sues she makes an equal protection claim the constitution's equal protection clause does mandate equality and the court has uh, recognized at least since the 1990s that, that any any race classification that adversely affects someone even reducing their chance of something like admission to a university is subject to strict scrutiny the toughest constitutional test and this goes up to the supreme court twice fisher one 2013 fisher two uh, uh this year and in fisher one the court doesn't ultimately resolve the case. What they do in Fisher One is they say the Fifth Circuit, the, the court below, applied the wrong standard. So what we're going to do is, is articulate for that lower court what the right standard is, and then we'll send it back down and let them resolve it. So there's a legal standard and then the application to the facts, and the court says we're going to clarify the legal standard, but we're not going to apply it to the facts. That's for the lower court to do, and that was Fisher One. And the basic principles that came out of Fisher One, the court reaffirms that strict scrutiny, this toughest constitutional test, applies. And strict scrutiny 
uh, requires a compelling state interest. These are all technical legal terms. They sound like they might be ordinary language, but they're technical legal terms, a compelling state interest. So the affirmative action policy, the use of race preferences, has to promote a compelling state interest, and it also has to be narrowly tailored, another term of art, which means that we have to use race as little as possible to achieve that compelling state interest. I'm going to jump in really quickly. We need to take a break, and we'll talk more about Fisher II when we get back. And Lisa is on the line from Fairhope, Alabama, with a comment about affirmative action. We want to hear your comments and questions. We're talking about affirmative action this morning, uh, the recent Fisher II and Fisher I cases, and the Supreme Court ruling. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING with your feedback. Do you believe affirmative action is still necessary in 2016 in schools or in the workplace? 877 Six seven two seven four six four or email legal terms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from Trustmark, featuring Trustmark Deposit Express, ATMs for business and personal banking. No deposit slips, no envelopes, no waiting. Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays credited that day. Details at Trustmark.com, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens, host of Southern Remedy for Women, here to warn you about an upcoming epidemic of license plate envy. Yes, it's coming after you see someone driving around with a new MPB car tag. It's the latest way you can support Mississippi Public Broadcasting continue the mission of educating, informing, and entertaining Mississippians. This epidemic is easily remedied by visiting mpbonline.org slash car tag to pre-order yours today. I was recently diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma. Those of you who've been listening to the news are probably totally confused about breast cancer and breast cancer screening. What choices exist to detect breast cancer? Is there a right way to fight it? The option that was presented to me by my surgeon was lumpectomy. Learn more in an MPB Southern Remedy documentary special, A Plan to Survive, July 14th at 7 on MPB TV. Hi, I'm Dr. Ricky Shazo for Southern Remedy. Each Wednesday, we answer your calls on health issues of interest to you. They range from medical questions on kids, young adults, baby boomers, and seniors. Whatever you need to know. Join me for Southern Remedy tomorrow morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. To call the show, dial 1 877 MPB Ring. That's 1 877 672 7464. Or email legal terms at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent, joined this morning by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and Jack Nolan, Senior Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're talking about affirmative action and a recent Supreme Court ruling in favor of affirmative action. And we'll discuss some of the policy arguments for and against affirmative action throughout the show and some landmark cases that may be determining its future. Our question to you listeners, do you believe affirmative action is still necessary in 2016 when it relates to school admissions or the workplace? Give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you have any comments about diversity. 877-672-7464 is the number. We do have a few lines open. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Lisa is in Fairhope. Lisa, thank you so much for waiting patiently. What's your comment? Um, well, I have um, a, a comment about your question, and I do believe that affirmative action was very necessary and has done a lot of good. As to whether um, affirmative action is still needed today, um, I think there, I guess what you'd call diminishing returns at this point, and um, I think though it, it does help individuals. Um, you, at some point, you have to, you know, wonder what it does. society as a whole Um, and I I think the problem is that with affirmative action you sometimes create groups that feel victimized and feel that society is against them and that they don't have a fair shot and that they'll never make it and I sort of see this going on now in a lot of um, you know women's groups that promote equal rights for women that they um, seem, you know, I'm 59, and um, I feel that there's this, um, you know, big movement to really victimize women as a group, and I don't think it, that serves the individual. And I'm, I'm wondering, does the law ever address affirmative action um, as far as, you know, what it does to um, the groups in society as far as, you know, you know, giving them, um, giving them what they need to succeed, rather than you know giving them a a victim status. And it sort of reminds me of you know kids who blame their parents for everything wrong, and then there are people who blame society for everything wrong in their life. And I wonder if affirmative action doesn't sometimes fall into that. All right, uh, Lisa. Very very interesting thoughts there, uh, professors. Any any response? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this is part of the debate. So there's a big policy back and forth when it comes to affirmative action, and there are the sort of standard arguments in favor of it. There are standard arguments against it. That's part of the policy debate. It's part of what the justices say on the Supreme Court in Adirond and Grutter and Gratz, Fisher One, Fisher Two. Justice Thomas, for instance, African-American justice, is very opposed to affirmative action, believes that race-based affirmative action is basically completely unconstitutional, and part of his argument... Uh, part of why he believes that is that he thinks affirmative action is is well-meaning, routinely, but it actually hurts racial minorities. And he, in his in in his opinion, in Fisher One, he talks about slavery being justified as a positive good for racial minorities by s- proponents of slavery. He talks about segregation being justified as a positive good for racial minorities by the proponents of segregation. And he says proponents of affirmative action do the same thing. They say it's a positive good, but in fact it is. It stigmatizes African-American achievement. It stigmatizes the achievement of racial minorities. It, it uh, you know, 
reinforces a view that maybe those groups can't compete on a level playing field, Justice Thomas says. There are concerns about mismatch, that it, it, it sends persons to institutions that are maybe too rigorous for them. And so there's a whole series of, of common objections. And I think anyone who's a supporter of affirmative action has to at least think about that. There are very few policies that have upsides with no downsides. So if you support a policy, what you have to do is make sure that the upsides outweigh, substantially outweigh the downsides. And I think lots of schools think in particular about uh, the effect that affirmative action could have on student attitudes towards race, uh, any ways that it might create racial tension. And then you have to take steps to try to minimize that. You have to make sure you have academic support programs if you're letting persons in whose test scores maybe indicate that they may have more of a, more likely to have at least a little struggle uh, in the, at the institution. So I think you take steps to address those. But the caller's comments are, you know, those are, you know, that's one side of an, of an argument. It's a, it's a, certainly is a plausible argument, and it's one that has support from justices in dissent on the Supreme Court. All right, Lisa, thank you for that call. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, we're going to stay on the phones, going next to Steve in Moss Point, who has a comment. Good morning, Steve. What do you have for us? Yeah, good morning. Uh, I, I, uh, just a comment. I, I think that uh, affirmative action is in a perfect world, should not be needed, but we don't live in a perfect world. And many times people are hired because of who they know. And I think affirmative action offsets that. And uh, I know that I was hired 40 years ago, and uh, the company, as I understand it, wanted just to hire me. There was one slot open. Uh, I'm a white guy. They hired, uh, because of affirmative action, they hired Hollis and me, and we both had long careers and successful careers. And I think in that case, uh, Hollis didn't know anybody at the company, and, and I had strong relationships, and and uh, and I think affirmative action worked. I don't know about the constitutionality and, uh, and the legal aspects, but I know on that one practical application, I thought affirmative action was appropriate and and, uh, and had the right effect. Okay. Uh, good call, Steve. Thank you for, for your, your call. Any thoughts on that, professors? Well, Shereen, I know that just in my classrooms, I always find that when there's a diversity not just racial diversity, but uh, you know, diversity of opinion, diversity of, uh, of uh, different backgrounds, um, people who have worked, people who are coming straight from college. That adds to the discussion. And I think really, you know, when we talk about um, affirmative action, one part of it is to make sure that our students are exposed to lots of different ways of thinking and a lot of different cultures because their clients are going to be from different cultures and ways of thinking. And I, do, I really do think that is, from an educational perspective, really helpful and I think in the workplace, it's also helpful, too. Mm-hmm. All right. We I need- would agree with that. And yeah, go ahead. I, so I, I would say um, it makes sense, to, even if you thought you couldn't use race as a plus factor, ethnicity as a plus factor, it makes sense to have a diversity policy that's focused on life experience. If you want to have the richest classroom experience, if you want to want to produce the widest variety of educated persons, of leaders in particular, if you're talking about a law school, it makes sense to ask about foreign languages, foreign travel, uh, origin, country of origin, military service, it makes age, so we have you know, non-traditional students, older students, people who've had different life experiences. When you, when you put it in that context, and then you think about all the issues you have with legacies, 
persons who have, you know, whose family went to the school. You think about people who have relationships with donors, and that, that shouldn't make a difference, but sometimes it does at some places. And then you think about undergraduate institutions, and you think about sports and music and extracurricular activities. When you think about all the things that could go into admissions, and then you think about the value of, of race diversity, it, it seems to me it makes sense to allow that. You, you, you don't want it to become a quota. You don't want it to become a set-aside, but the Supreme Court recognizes that within you know reasonable constitutional limits, there's no reason why race or a few other factors would need to be singled out for exclusion when lots of schools are looking at so many other different kinds of factors. And we'll talk more about that idea of a quota versus a goal when we get back, and we'll talk more about constitutional limits and the idea of reverse discrimination. But we do have some lines open if you want to give us a call. Uh, Dawood from Cleveland, hold on just a second. We'll get to you after this break, and we do have a few lines open. Our question to you is, do you believe affirmative action is still necessary in 2016 in schools or in the workplace? Do you think affirmative action is condescending, or does it give people a fair chance? 877-MPB-RAIN is the number. We do have some lines open. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent, joined this morning by Professor Richard Gershon and Jack Nolan, Senior Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning we're talking about affirmative action and a recent Supreme Court ruling in favor of affirmative action. We're talking about the different aspects of it this morning. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. Our question to you, listeners, do you believe affirmative action is still necessary in 2016 in schools or in the workplace? Uh, do you think it is condescending or do you think it gives people a fair chance? 877-672-7464 is the number. We do have some lines open. We're going to the phones. Dawood is in Cleveland with a comment. Good morning, Dawood. Hello? Yeah, hell is love. Hi. Hi. Go ahead. W- what's your comment? Well, the, the topic uh, is whether or not I think uh, affirmative action is, in fact, um, necessary in this 2016, correct? Yes. Um, well, first I want to start off by saying, you know, I just want to kind of, for, for now, I want to reserve my opinion and just look at the facts. Um, this uh, this country we call America, which, oh, by the way, I'm a United States Naval Submarine veteran. Uh, Thank you um, for your service. I actually served myself. Okay. Uh, because this is, this is my country. I feel like, you know, uh, uh, me and my people built it. Um, this this country's five centuries deep in cotton money. Um, myself and my family, my people, have been set at naught. And uh, this, uh, you know, the, the quote unquote alleged alleged founding fathers were educated by the Moors. And I'm not an African American because America was named after Miracle Vespucci, and Africa was named after Scipio Africanus. So I'm actually a Moor and. 
this is something that's constantly, this miseducation is constantly being perpetuated in the, the public school system with our tax dollars to this very day. Um, bottom line is, I, I understand culturally uh, who Caucasians really are. I understand culturally who me and my people really are. And I see the erases. I see how uh, you're trying to erase my culture, my people, my religion, my God, systematically. And then because I don't make uh, Caucasians feel comfortable with what they have done, that the, the, the overall objective is to, to, to jail me and, and make money on me simultaneously. That is the, the epitome of, of, of being diabolical and, 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 and insidious. Do you agree or disagree with, with what it is I'm saying? Now, okay. okay, hold on, hold on, just a second, Dawood. I, I just wanted to get to your specific questions or comments about affirmative action. I think affirmative action is an insult. I think, in, in fact, the former slave masters and their children should get back the wealth that they stole from from not only the continent of Africa but to the people that they brought up. Okay, Dawood, thank you so much for your uh, your call. Uh, very passionate thoughts there, uh, professors. I don't know if you have any follow up questions, but any thoughts? Well, Sharita, a lot of immigrants came to this country well after uh, slavery. Um, I know my grandfather did. Uh, and uh, and my grandfather suffered uh, discrimination, a different kind of discrimination, religious discrimination. But, I mean, you know, it, it, we now have a country that is hopefully uh, becoming more united. I, I would hope that is the case. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have to some extent we all have to we all have a past. I think it's time for all of us to start to think about the future and our children's future, because really, um, you know, that is the best best course for our country. All right. yeah, I would say I, I agree with all of that. And I mean, I think we have a history of racism in the country. There's still racism today. Racism breeds resentment, right? justifiable resentment and maybe sometimes unjustifiable resentment. Hate breeds hate. So I think, you know, you, you've got the range of opinions, right? There are some folks who want, you know, uh, new race neutrality because they say, well, the racism is over. There are people who say, no, we have to have uh, consideration of race to try to balance out the current racism or recent past racism. And there are folks who think the policies that we have today, the kind approved by the Supreme Court and Fisher, don't go far enough and want reparations or other things. And you can see why there is the range of opinions. I appreciate anybody's passion on these issues because they are issues we should be passionate about. All right, uh, we're going to go next to Katie, who's in Flowood. Good morning, Katie. What do you have for us? Thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to respond to an earlier caller who was making a comment that uh, groups that benefit from affirmative action policies uh, tend to see themselves as victims, that they uh, are living with a victimized mindset. And I wanted to push up against that, push back against that, because um, what was said earlier is, we do not have an even playing field here in the United States in terms of uh, people seeking educational and workplace opportunities. Uh, the way that society has been set up, the American society has been set up from the beginning, starting with the Constitution, has really been a country that has favored able-bodied white men. If you were a land-owning white man, you were considered a citizen. Everything else, everybody else was of secondary status. Um, so I don't think it's fair to say that people who benefit from affirmative action see themselves as victims just um, because there really is a disadvantage here in the United States if you're anything other than an able-bodied straight white man. Um, so that is 
my initial comment, but uh, I did have a question. Um, I missed the first half of the show, but I was wondering, does affirmative action policies, do those include other statuses other than race? Like is uh, disability, gender identity, sexuality, and age, are those covered within um, a lot of affirmative action policies that we see being implemented in different colleges and universities? Okay, good question, Katie. That's something we hadn't gotten to yet, and we were about to when we were going to talk about the constitutional limits uh, when it comes to affirmative action. Uh, So, professors, in addition to race, um, are gender and veteran status and other things mentioned by Katie included? Yeah, routinely they are included. In in fact, the Supreme Court jurisprudence suggests that you you can't really have the race-based affirmative action unless it's part of a broader diversity policy that includes lots of non-racial considerations. So the the, the policy Michigan, the Michigan Law School had in Grutter, the policies most law schools have today mention gender, they mention disability, they mention sexual orientation, they mention socioeconomic status, and lots and lots of other things. And in fact, so in fact, not, not only is it typically included, I think if a school tried to do a policy that was only race-based and didn't have any other holistic factors that you could consider diversity factors, I think that would actually be unconstitutional. So it's actually having a broad respect for diversity and all its educational benefits and all its many, many different forms that allows you to include race uh, in that mix. All right, Katie, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. We need to take our last break. When we get back, uh, we'll continue the conversation about affirmative action. We have some things we haven't gotten to, such as um, does affirmative action lead to reverse discrimination? We'll talk about that idea. And you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you want to join the conversation. Do you believe affirmative action is still necessary in 2016 in school admissions and that process or the workplace? 877-MPB-RING is the number. That's 877 or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent here with Professor Richard Gershon and Jack Nolan, Senior Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we've been talking about affirmative action and we have some calls to get to. Uh, But first I wanted to talk about this idea of reverse discrimination. Um, It's been also been called reverse racism. Many believe that affirmative action leads to reverse discrimination. Uh, I guess that's kind of uh, some part of the argument for Abigail Fisher. She felt like she was being discriminated against by not giving, being given an opportunity to uh, be admitted into the University of Texas. So um, is there any depth or uh, rhyme or reason to the idea of reverse discrimination as uh, an appeal to affirmative action? 
Well, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, the terms, a lot of people would say reverse discrimination is a loaded term because discrimination in this context seems to be pejorative. The thought is if it's discrimination, it's unjustifiable. What's undoubtedly happening in a race-based affirmative action program is you have a race classification. And you have some folks who are, some, some folks, some classes are getting a race preference, a plus factor, and other people aren't. And so that is a detriment to those persons, and it does give them standing to sue. So Abigail Fisher had standing to sue the University of Texas because she had suffered a detriment, her a, a chance to be, uh, to be admitted into the class of 2008 was undercut by the affirmative action program. So she had standing to sue. Now she ultimately lost the case. The Supreme Court decided that the race classification that, that was to her detriment, at least at some level, was not unjustifiable. That was constitutional and justifiable. So is justifiable discrimination really discrimination? I mean, you certainly, in one sense, can say there was discrimination there. Reverse just means it's the opposite of the historic kinds of discrimination against racial minorities that we've had. It's not, in the view of the Supreme Court, unjustifiable discrimination. If you're one of the dissenters in Fisher, then she was discriminated against. It was reverse discrimination, and it was unjustifiable. So you certainly do have the race classification happening. That's what triggers the constitutional issue. That's what leads to the litigation. But not everybody who has a claim uh, is going to win that claim. And the court has decided pretty, I think, pretty... Clearly now, now this Grutter has been reaffirmed again, that even though we're applying the toughest constitutional test to race-based affirmative action, lots of race-based programs universities use today are constitutional and any discrimination is justifiable. And Jack, I mean, every time we accept one student and turn mm -hmm. down another student, yeah. that in some ways one would argue that's discrimination. Yeah. We're making a choice, and that's yeah. really what discrimination is. Yeah. I mean, I, if, this, if we didn't have a, a case like Fisher coming out the way it did, it would almost be that uh, the the courts would have to look at every applicant mm -hmm. to decide whether we made an appropriate mm -hmm. decision. And it really ought to be admissions committees of universities mm -hmm. deciding who's the best. A part of the legal test involved is, is based on the classification. So we view race classifications as suspicious because of the history of wrongful race discrimination. So we apply a tougher constitutional test that leads people to sue. And sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But other classifications like age classifications get a test called rational basis review that basically ensures that in most cases the person suing is going to lose. And so we don't get very many of those those cases. And so all, the, all this really does, the Fisher level case is put race in a narrow context back into the group of permissible bases to choose between students. And that choice is, as Richard says, that choice can be called discrimination. It's a non-pejorative, non-wrongful kind of discrimination. All right. We do have a few calls to get to. We may not get to all of them, but we're going to try. We are going first to David in Tupelo, who has a comment. Good morning, David. What do you have for us? Hey, good morning. Great show. Um, really compelling. Just wanted to offer a clarification on a comment that was made earlier about sort of the posture of the framers of the Constitution and the, their intention maybe to leave uh, all people out who are not, you know, white, male, straight, and so on. And I think there's a, a finer point to be made there, and I think it's interesting that the framers were deeply troubled by race and certainly by slavery and wanted language in the Constitution to abolish slavery and couldn't get it done. And the reason that they insisted that only white landowners could vote was that they thought it would help incentivize, incentivize uh, southern landholders who had you know, large holdings of slaves to eventually abolish slavery because otherwise they'd be underrepresented and wouldn't get their you know, cases heard before uh, federal government and so on. So it's kind of interesting to me that their whole reason for only allowing white 
landowners to do that was actually to discourage slavery. Hmm. Interesting thought, David. Uh, Professor, is any comment? I would just say you can't expect the framers of the U.S. Constitution to be perfect, and you can't expect them to have achieved perfect justice or to understand justice as we do now. I have the greatest respect for the framers, and one of the great things about the framers is they they put in place uh, provisions in the Constitution for amendment. And then we had hmm. we see after the Civil War, we have the Reconstruction Amendments. We abolish slavery. We guarantee everyone equal protection. We guarantee everyone the right to vote. Thirteenth, Fourteenth, Fifteenth Amendments. And so I, I think the framers understood they didn't they didn't understand everything. That's why we have legislatures that can pass new laws. That's why we have constitutional amendments. And this, this country's made tremendous progress on racial issues. We have a ways to go, and I suspect we'll always feel like we have a ways to go, but we've made tremendous, we've made tremendous um, progress. I like to think of the framers for all the good things they did without, without expecting them to be perfect from a modern perspective. No doubt 200 years from now, people will look back on us and think that we were good in some ways and terrible in some ways, and I hope they'll be as charitable to us as lots of us are to the founders of the country. All right. Donna is on the road. Good morning, Donna. What's your comment? I just wanted to kind of throw a point of view out there from human resources. Um, I work for a manufacturing company in HR, and because we have government contracts, we're held, um, we're bound under the under to do affirmative action. And it kind of sometimes it actually has a reverse impact on on like an African American because my jobs are, are predominant that I recruit for predominantly assembly or production, and my community. Um, is there's a lot. It's, it's about half African American, but but whenever I I do an ad, it'll be 90% African American that apply. But I'm trying to mirror what's in the community, and and so sometimes we're passing on an, an African American to put another race in there, and and so it feels almost like in those cases, affirmative action is actually hurting African Americans. Hmm. All right. Interesting thought. Donna, thank you for your call. Um, we only have about 30 seconds. Uh, Professor, did you want to respond to that? I would just say that, you know, you try to have a policy uh, and it's a nationwide policy and then you go to different locales and it's not surprising that you get unintended consequences, unexpected consequences. Uh, that's That sounds like a shame that that's happening that way, but it, it's not surprising when you have policies you're trying to design for, the, you know, the, the typical situation and then you get an atypical situation. All right, uh, Donna, thank you for your call. Dwayne, we're not going to get to your call. We've reached the end of the show, and uh, we wouldn't want you to have to rush. So if you could, please send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org, or you can give us a call back next uh, Tuesday morning at 10. Uh, Professor Nolan, thank you so much for being in today. Professor Gershon, thank you. thank you as well for being on. And if you didn't get a chance to call today, once again, that email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Thank you, Sam Wells, for being my board operator. Jay White was my call screener. Stay tuned. Southern Remedy is coming up next, uh, relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress right here on MPB Think Radio.